Hi everyone, I'm Darren Nair, the creator and host of Pod Hostage Diplomacy. We're currently taking an extended break right now because I'm dealing with health issues. We will be back once I have fully recovered. Thank you so much for listening to Pod Hostage Diplomacy and take care. Welcome to Pod Hostage Diplomacy. We work to free hostages and the unjustly detained around the world. I'm Darren Nair. Nazanin Zahari Ratcliffe is a British citizen and a charity worker. She has been held hostage in Iran since 3rd April 2016. Her husband, Richard Ratcliffe, was on a hunger strike for 21 days outside the UK Foreign Office, which is right next to the Prime Minister's office. Now, Richard had four demands for Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Number one, acknowledge Nazanin and the other British citizens held in Iran as hostages. Number two, punish the perpetrators. Demand number three, keep the promise to settle the debt. Now, what Richard is talking about here is the £400 million unpaid debt that Britain owes Iran, which is over 40 years old. Nazanin is being held hostage by the Iranian regime to force the British government to repay this debt. And demand number four, commit to end state hostage taking, also known as hostage diplomacy, in the JCPOA Iran nuclear deal negotiations. Now, thankfully, Richard has ended his hunger strike on Saturday, which was day 21. He promised Nazanin he would do so because their seven-year-old daughter Gabriella needs both her parents. Now, if you would like to find out more about Richard's hunger strike, the reasons why Nazanin was taken hostage, the deplorable conditions of her detention, as well as the amazing campaigning Richard has done throughout these last five and a half years with the families of other hostages, please do listen to our last two episodes. This week's episode is part three of our coverage of Richard's hunger strike. I speak to Richard himself to find out how he's recovering, his thoughts on the free Nazanin debates in the Houses of Parliament that took place yesterday and the day before, as well as what's next for the free Nazanin campaign. Here's our conversation. You were on hunger strike for 21 days. It's been three days since you ended your hunger strike. How are you feeling? Um, yeah. Uh, so probably better than, than when I entered it. Um, by the end, it was getting quite tough. Uh, and I was certainly struggling the last few days, feeling very short of energy. Um, three days on, I've had a few meals, not much food. Um, been limited to 800 calories a day. Um, and I've been down to see the hospital a couple of times. So straight after I went to the hospital. Um, and was again there yesterday and we'll be going again tomorrow. Um, and they've basically been checking to see bloods and so on. Um, I feel gradually better and stronger, uh, but but it's quite complex when you come off a hunger strike in that obviously when you're not eating, all your nutrients go down. But when you start eating again, it's not as simple as they all go up. Some go up, but others go down more as a response to the food. Um, so they wanted to admit me on the Saturday. In actual fact, they wanted to admit me again yesterday. Um, we'll see how it goes tomorrow. Um, I've just had a meal and I'm sitting here thinking, oh, that's, you know, it's creaking my body as it goes through it. But, but, you know, it was, it was, um, a, a very important 
campaigning moment for us. It felt like we received a huge lot of support and care. And physically, it's creaky. So far, no major complications have emerged. Um, that doesn't mean they won't in the next few days. Um, the most dangerous time was immediately after hunger strike, not during it. Um, but touch wood that we get through it. Um, I, I think, yeah, I'm upbeat. It felt, it felt like it made a difference. So you lost 12 kilograms, is that right? Yes. Yes. So I, I, I mean, candidly was probably a bit overweight, um, going into it, um, following all those years in lockdown or a year and a half in lockdown. Um, and so I went down quite a lot. And of course, partly because it was, you know, we were camping in, in the cold. So more energy was used in keeping warm than would have been uh, if it had been done in, in room temperature, um, or, or even camping in the summer. Um, so I lost a lot of weight. Um, and certain things like my potassium levels were, were really low. Um, a couple of other things were, you know, in the red zone, not necessarily in the, in the, oh my God, you can't leave hospital zone. Um, but certainly medical advice was, you know, we think you should stay in. It, it's not a thing to do lightly and it's not a thing to be flippant about. And we probably pushed it as far as we could with, um, the chances of being safe afterwards being reasonable. Not great, but, but reasonable. Um, and we'll see. I, I, yeah, I, I think the first time I did a hunger strike, which was only for two weeks, I, I, you know, okay, well, it's, you know, it's a bit tough afterwards, but you bounce back. Um, actually, you know, it, I think I've pushed my body pretty hard this time. Well, we hope you recover soon and uh, no complications. And it shows that you lost 12 kilograms. I remember Nazanin asking you to keep your beard for a few days when she first saw you on Saturday when you came home. But Gabriella said no and wanted you to shave it off straight away. And looking at you right now, I see Gabriella got her way. I am in, indeed beardless. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's exactly right. Um, Nazanin wanted to sort of, you know, kind of... Uh, um, romantic holiday figure, I suppose, rather than a, than a clean-shaven accountant. Um, I still wanted to have a sort of, uh, you know, beard and so on. And, and Gabriella didn't want someone who was scratchy to cuddle. So it was quite straightforward <laughs> in, in her logic. And, and as I said, well, you know, I think I think Gabriella's got call on this one. You know, you're you're far away. Um, I can see her needs are a lot more straightforward. Um, so we agreed that that you know when Nasty comes back, we'll go on holiday, and then then I you know can grow another beard, and, and that can be part of a sort of a nice holiday atmosphere rather than associated with a with a hunger strike. Um, I certainly feel a lot cleaner now having it all off. And, and, and back to normal um and yeah i think probably look a bit a bit younger um partly partly just because i'm thinner again um rather than middle-aged uh, overweight man um and yeah i i think for gabriella you know she was looking for things to get back to normal um and actually has been a bit frustrated this week so i had promised her i'd be picking her up from school every day um, actually on, on Monday, I was in hospital, um, all day. It was in at, at 9.30, didn't get out of there until after school pickup time, so until about four o'clock. Um, so she was, yeah, really upset that, that, uh, um, you know, I not kept that promise. Um, and, and probably all the emotions of, you know, having neither her mum nor dad these past three weeks and being looked after by different family members, but not having them around and the disruption of different people in the flat. And, and it was, you know, as you'll recall, it was, it was a big mess that because everyone was just surviving. Um, and we're not 
unpacked or sorted out or decamped. I suspect that will take a couple of weeks to get back to normality. Um, but certainly for her, getting back to the routine of, of you know, school pickup and various different things is, is quite important for her sense of safety as much as anything else. There have been debates in the Houses of Parliament, both the House of Lords and the House of Commons, about the British government's efforts to free Nazanin and the fact that they need to do much better. What are your thoughts on these debates? Uh, that's right. So, so probably one of the things that came out of the hunger strike was was a huge build-up of parliamentary concern and um, impatience that this has been allowed to drag on for so long. And there is something genuinely abnormal about a British citizen being on hunger strike in front of his government to get the government to pay attention and do something. So we had a, um, an urgent question in the House of Lords yesterday, and today we had uh, what's called a Westminster Hall debate, um, which is a really long one, like an hour and a half. Um, and I was at the debate today, um, and the one yesterday, not so much. I saw, saw that on, on telly. Um, yesterday, I thought the government's response was quite unnerving. Um, there was, you know, a very good showing from the Lords asking lots of really good questions about, you know, well, when are we moving on the debt? What are we doing to challenge Iran's hostage taking? What, you know, what's going on? And, and the, the minister answering, uh, Lord Goldsmith, um, and we said a load of tosh, if I'm honest, um, you know, really quite, um, hardened positions. But, uh, you know, we actually, we checked them again today, like, and we'll check them again with the Foreign Office directly, um, in writing and verbally. You know, he was saying, listen, we can't possibly pay our debt back because then it would look like we're paying ransoms for hostages, um, which is completely the cart before the horse. Um, and, and, uh, in a far more hardened position than, than, you know, they've ever said before. Um, you know, and he wouldn't use the word British. So he didn't ever refer to Nazanin as British. It was always the dual nationals as, as though there is this sort of hierarchy of citizenship. Um, and there are two tiers. And, you know, there are those who really care about the, the real British. And then there's the, those who have never British passport. Uh, but we all know they're minorities and probably a different color. Um, so I, I, I think, um, that was shameful. Um, and certainly was fairly bleak yesterday. Um, not least because the government tried to pressure the House of Commons in the debate today not to talk about the debt, um, where my instinct was just to tell the newspapers about that. And, and that's what I did. Um, and then the speaker overruled, um, and gave us sort of a waiver, as it's called, to be able to talk about whatever you want and that there isn't a, you know, um, a restriction. Um, today's debate I thought was excellent. So it was an hour and a half. Um, it was a Westminster Hall debate normally has like sort of five or six MPs turn up if we're honest. This one had over 50. There was standing room only. Um, there was plenty of people, uh, who wanted to speak and couldn't. Lots of interventions, some really excellent points from Conservative MPs, as well as, um, you know, SNP and, uh, Labour and, and Lib Dems. Um, we'd been worried that it would just end up being sort of an oppositional debate. Um, with just opposition MPs and then, you know, the minister defending, but it, it wasn't, it was, it was cross party. Um, and there must have been 25 voices saying to the government, listen, this is, this is debt. It is honorable to pay a debt. Uh, the failure to pay the debt, um, of course creates problems. And, you know, it does not make sense that there has been no way to do that. Um, I think the minister was quite shaken by the end. Um, he was struggling to finish his speech and get his points across. Um, got challenged quite robustly, mainly on the debt, but also on well, what have you done with diplomatic protection? And his answer was, 
um, weak to the point of disingenuous. Um, it's the only bit I reacted in the, in, the, in the thing was like, I can't believe you got away with, you know, he's trying to say that twice. So what he said was, well, yes, we invoked diplomatic protection in Nazanin's case, because I'd asked him explicitly, I want you to set out what you've done with it in the last two years. And, but as when we invoked it, we said it might not achieve anything. And indeed, uh, that's been true, approved. Um, and it's a great shame. Um, but the reason is because Iran doesn't recognize your nationality, which, which is such a combination of lies. It's untrue. Um, you know, the reality is that the UK has achieved nothing with diplomatic protection because it has used diplomatic protection, not one bit. And there are various things we've been pushing the government to do and they haven't done any of them. But Iran's attitude to dual nationality or single nationality um, or even diplomatic protection is irrelevant legally. Um, you know, it's like me sending my navy to you and then saying, well, my navy didn't defeat you because actually, as it turns out, um, you don't like, you don't like votes. It's irrelevant, like, you know, your Navy goes in, you do it, the other side, um, you know, responds to the reality they're given. The UK clearly, the Foreign Office clearly uh, pretended, decided didn't want to have done it and pretended it away and hasn't done anything with it. Um, he was asked a number of questions about whether he was going to invoke it um, for another case, and I'm sure his case, um, and was very cagey, basically saying, well, it you know, doesn't really achieve much, so we're probably not, not sure where we're going to do it. Um, that's the only bit where I thought um, he was saying something new but problematic. Otherwise, it was the same platitudes. Um, we were looking to those debates to get a sense of how the government's position moved. I think what is clear from the last two days is no, the government's position hasn't moved. It's still waiting for something, still something's blocked. We don't get to see what. Um, but the, probably there is more and more open condemnation um, and, and you know, open, um, I don't know what the word is, I don't know what the word is, like just astonishment at the failure of, of the government being maintaining these, these false lines, clearly false. So I think the government will have walked away feeling exceedingly exposed. Uh, both houses are making it perfectly clear that the government's position is not good enough. Uh, that was being said repeatedly over the minister's words. Um, and it's right, the government's position is indefensible, and that's why it offers no credible defence whatsoever. So I came away yesterday, I came away today a lot more upbeat than I was at this time yesterday. This time yesterday, we were still battling about whether we'd be able to talk about the debt. I'd just seen the House of Lords nonsense from the minister. Um, where it takes us, I don't know. I think what was clear is we have a consensus across the house uh, to resolve this. Um, people saying, "Listen, we had we've had you know two hundred constituency messages on this issue. Um, you know, a big issue would get twenty normally. Um, it's almost unprecedented. Um, and yeah, that can only uh, be a good thing. We still don't know at this point what." What are the blockages? It doesn't. It doesn't make sense at this point. So, I think my honest sense is we have to keep battling, um, and and battle we will. So your hunger strike didn't bring Nazanin home, but it definitely put a lot of pressure on the British government. It received global media coverage and so much support within the UK and around the world. You now have this momentum where so many more people are aware of Nazanin's case, aware of Iran's hostage taking 
and also aware of Britain's inability and lack of will to protect its own citizens overseas. What are you doing to take advantage of this momentum? What's next for the Free Nazanin campaign? Okay, it's a really good question. And it's probably a bit early to say since we, you know, I'm still in recovery mode. Um, but I think that's right. I think it feels now like it did back in autumn 2017, that there's a, a recognition um, that the government has messed up um, and that the government needs to step up and, and resolve things. And it's failing Nazanin at a fundamental level. Um, I think it's a different recognition back back in 2017 it was fairly blamed on on the then foreign secretary now prime minister for his mistake um there's more of a policy understanding now that there's, there's a policy gap here um around iran's hostage taking around um the uk's response to it and, and the timidity um of that response um the point which doesn't make sense to anyone looking at it um in terms of next steps i think we need to look carefully at what we can do in Parliament. You know, that's about as big a debate as we can. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn was spoke of it, said that it was the biggest Westminster Hall debate he could remember in his parliamentary history. Well, he's been there for 40 years. Um, the government has a remarkable record of deflecting and downplaying and calming down again. So I don't think we should be resting on laurels. So there's a need to think, well, what can we do beyond that? Um, how can Parliament impose a will on the government on this issue beyond just having various debates saying, listen, government, you're useless, and, and getting, uh, you know, platitudes back. Certainly there's a strong appetite to bring the Foreign Secretary or the Prime Minister to talk about this. Um, again, it was the junior minister who was the fall guy who had to, you know, offer up um, the government's excuses. Um, and, and beyond that, I think... There are points we can follow up with the lawyers. Um, when I was talking there about the, the diplomatic protection stuff, the bits around the government's legal claims on um, sanctions and so on, which just don't stack up. I think we should be calling them out a bit more. And, and certainly, you know, around, I mean, he was asked quite bluntly to acknowledge that he was a hostage. He wouldn't do it again. Bits to start follow up on there. In terms of what people can do in relation to that, I, I think we do need to, think how we can um you know build on that support um both within the parliamentary system but also outside to just you know this is a government our government the british government um you know responds to populist pressure in, in quite a straightforward way they've had a series of u-turns um i think we clearly are a problem with the government whether we're still a problem for the prime minister or whether he's sort of successfully keeping us you know, shouting at his, his juniors um, remains to be seen. Um, I, um, I think we stepped up again in awareness and awareness of the government's role in that compared to previously. Um, but we've been here before and, and the government's got off the hook. So I, I don't know in the end. I think, I think it's a mixture of getting better and, and stepping away from the, the white heat of the hunger strike moment. To, to work out where we are and what can we do and what's reasonable. And it probably is working with a number of the other families. You know, actually the last three weeks, it's all been our folks has been on Nazanin, getting Nazanin home, um, which is quite different from what we used to, were doing, say, six months ago. Um, and it, you know, provokes unsettling dynamics um, between different families and so on, because uh, obviously the pressure is for us. It's not necessarily for other families and, and, and it re reverberates in different ways. Um, 
so yeah, I was, was talking afterwards with um, our lawyers at Redress, guys in Amnesty about okay, what can we do next? And it it's probably not much more than well, let's sit down and work things through, and then see how we can mobilise all those great amnesty groups and all they they do. How we can mobilise the, the legal stuff, what we can do with the media, and, and um, a long rambling answer to say I don't know, but I think this is an opportunity to really push the government to protect people better. Um, and, you know, I do have a responsibility to try and make the best use of that. So in the meantime, members of the public can help by sharing Nazanin's story with everyone they know. You can keep writing to your members of parliament. You can write a letter to your local newspaper and let them know why you think it's important the British government brings Nazanin home and better protects British citizens overseas. And tie it to how that relates to you and the people you know in your life and how it could potentially affect them too one day. So those are just some suggestions of what you can do to help. Now, is there anything else you'd like to mention, Richard? I know, I'm probably just a big thank you. Um, we had a huge, uh, overwhelming level of support, but also at a, at a more simple level. Like a, I experienced an awful lot of kindness these past three weeks from an awful lot of kind, lovely, caring people up and down the country on social media, but also like in, in person who came to visit. Um, that's a really rare experience. It's a really nurturing experience. Um, and it is something I will treasure for the rest of my days. So thank you to everyone who has been part of that experience and who's you know shared their kindness with us. I've said this many times and I've always meant it. We'll be right here by your side until Nazanin comes home. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us and we wish you a speedy recovery. Thank you. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with my background, I've been campaigning to free hostages and the unjustly detained for almost six years. I used to be a director on the board of Amnesty International UK. I've left Amnesty now and I decided to create a media company that includes this podcast to continue my work to free hostages and the unjustly detained. I get contacted by the families of current hostages around the world, especially those held in Iran. These are families that are yet to go public with their loved one's case. Whenever this happens, there are two people I always consult with, Richard Ratcliffe and Jason Rezaian. Jason Rezaian is an American and a Washington Post reporter. In July 2014, when Jason was the Post's Tehran bureau chief, he was arrested by the Iranian regime and held hostage for 544 days in Iran's notorious Evin prison. Shortly after Jason's release in early 2016, Nazanin Zahari Ratcliffe was taken hostage by the same regime and held in the same prison. Jason has created an amazing podcast that tells you his story. It's called 544 Days and is available exclusively on Spotify. Please do check it out. Since Jason's release, he has been tirelessly working with other hostage families to free their loved ones, including Richard Radcliffe. I'm Jason Rezaian and I'm a journalist for the Washington Post. I got to know Richard Radcliffe uh, in 2016. Um, I had been held hostage by the regime in Iran from July of 2014 until January of 2016, when I was released in a negotiated settlement between Iran and the US. Uh, not long after I was released, Nazanin 
was arrested. And um, it wasn't too long after that before Richard and I connected. He was looking for advice and support in his efforts to uh, free Nazanin and bring Nazanin and their daughter, Gabriella back to the UK. Um, I was very uh, ready to do whatever I could to help. I'm shocked that it's been now almost six years that Richard and I um, have be, um, been communicating and uh, plotting different ways to try and uh, raise awareness around Nazanin's case and also push for a resolution. I've written stories about Nazanin. Um, I've uh, done television interviews. But I've also developed a, a real fondness and admiration for Richard, who um, is part of this strange family of um, hostage loved ones uh, and survivors that we have been kind of cobbling together around the world uh, in recent years. And I've, I've looked at Richard as a kindred spirit throughout. Um, we speak regularly and I'm always uh, astounded by uh, his ability um, to be gracious, to maintain a sense of humor and perspective uh, and to just really uh, always advocate for his family, for his wife and his daughter. Um, it's a special gift that he has. And uh, I think I have learned a tremendous amount uh, from Richard in, in the last few years that, that we have been um, communicating and, um, and, and, and sharing ideas, information, and strategies about how to put an end to state-sponsored hostage-taking. For me, as someone who uh, is, uh, is home now and whose ordeal is over, uh, it's easy to make a decision that I want to uh, work with others to try and end this heinous practice. But for Richard, who has been mired in it in real time for uh, nearly six years, it's an incredible credit and testament to his character that um, he is so invested in not only trying to end uh, his his own family's ordeal, um, but in in trying to end this practice once and for all make it harder for uh, governments around the world, whether it's Iran or other governments, to do this to innocent individuals, but also to raise the stakes for democratic governments like the UK, like the US, like Germany, France, Canada, Australia, and other allies to say, hey, look, your citizens are being taken hostage and used as leverage. You must stand up to this evil uh, and come up with adequate deterrence. Um, that hasn't happened yet. But uh, thanks to Richard, I believe that we're closer to forcing that issue uh, among responsible governments. And uh, I, I deeply believe that um, when this 
when this this crime against individuals is finally rooted out and uh, eradicated, it will be in no small part because of Richard and his efforts. I firmly believe that uh, if and when this problem is eradicated, uh, we will look back on Richard and his efforts uh, to not only raise awareness about the issue of state hostage taking and hostage diplomacy, but also um, coming up with effective tools to yeah. deter it. Um, uh, he will be credited as, a, as an individual yeah. who was involved with this um, at, at a turning point in the history of the problem. And I think everyone uh, owes him a debt of gratitude for, um, for his commitment, but more than that, for his commitment to humanity. If I've learned anything campaigning with the families of hostages these last six years, it's that campaigning to free a loved one held hostage by a foreign government is a marathon, not a sprint. We're in it for the long haul and we need good caring people like you to join us. Let's work together to free Nazanin. Thank you for listening and take care.